My dog went flying through the air over the tree. I don't know how it did it. Okay. Damn it, I'm really confused. All I saw was my dog coming over the fence, and Nate was dead when she hit the ground. I didn't see any cars. All I saw was my dog coming over the fence. Uh, we got someone or something crawling around out here. Did you see what it was? Was it a person or an animal or? Jesus Christ, you better. Sir? Yeah. Hello? Get somebody out here. What's going on now, sir? That son of a bitch is about six foot nine, I don't know. Do you see him now, sir? Yes, I'm looking right at him. Uh-oh. Okay, hang on. He's right. Is he in your yard, sir? Yeah, God, he's big. Okay, what's he doing in your yard? He's looking at me. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Bigfoot and the Citizen Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Tyler. I want to thank you for being here today. If you have an encounter or a story you'd like to be heard or shared, please send us an email at sciencemeetsbigfoot at gmail.com or go to my anchor.fm page and send me a voice message with your story. And I'll be standing by waiting to hear from you. Today we venture off a personal study and go into accounts. This is a long-standing account that uh, most of us in the Bigfoot world know about. Uh, Today we are going to be talking about Ape Canyon. So there's lots of stuff to be learned about this subject. There is lots of skepticism and a whole lot of belief which side do you stand on so without any further ado i bring to you ape canyon Who is it? This ain't funny.
One of the most well-known and widely discussed cryptids of all time are the mysterious hairy ape-like giants of North America, which are variously called the Bigfoot, the Sasquatch, Skunk Ape, Grassman, and other regional names. Seen all over the continent, they may differ in appearance or behavior, but one thing that is usually consistent is that for all of their size and strength, they seem to be mostly peaceful and benevolent denizens of the forest, much more likely to run away or hide than to confront. Yet there have been many accounts from at least the 19th century all the way up to the present of a different side of these creatures, that of a fierce, ferocious beast fully willing and able to attack or even kill if it has to. Although not as common as reports of more benign or gentle Bigfoot, the accounts or violent or aggressive Bigfoot attacks are rather scary and shocking and show that there's perhaps more to these enigmatic creatures than meets the eye. Perhaps the most widely known and publicized case of an attack on humans from an alleged Bigfoot occurred in the summer of 1924 when five prospectors by the name of Marion Smith, his son Roy Smith, Fred Beck, Gabe Lefevre, and John Peterson were out in the wilds of Mount St. Helens. This is their story. In July of 1924, Fred Beck, along with four other gold prospectors, stumbled out of a forest right near Mount St. Helens in Washington State, and they swore to each other that they would not tell a soul what they had seen in the mountains the night before. But literally, within a few hours of making that promise to each other, one of the men had spilled the beans at a bar. Very quickly, their story would garner major national media attention and even drew some international attention as well. This is their story. So the week leading up to the men arriving back in town with this crazy story, they had been prospecting for gold in an area they were very accustomed to working in. In fact, for the past six years, they had been going to this spot. So it was an area they knew well. And so this particular week that they were out there had been really successful. They had found a whole bunch of gold. It was like this great run of luck and nobody wanted to leave. Unfortunately, one of the men named Fred Beck started complaining of a really bad toothache. Now, they're about two miles away from this town. It's very rugged terrain. It's not safe for someone to travel alone in case something were to happen. And so Fred needed one or all of these men to come back with him. None of them wanted to leave, but they were willing to compromise. And they said, let's stay here today, and then we'll be first thing tomorrow morning. And so Fred didn't really have much of a choice, and so he agreed and spent the rest of the day prospecting for gold. When the sun started to go down, the men decided it was time to pack it in and head to their cabin. Now, because these men had worked in this area for the past six years, they had actually built a small log cabin centrally located in this area so they could just crash out there and continue to work and not need to commute out of the town. The cabin, though, was not built for comfort. It was built entirely for practicality. It was barely big enough to sleep all five men, and in fact, two of them had to sleep in the same bed, like right against one another, and then the other three had to sleep on the ground. 
There were no windows in this cabin. It was like this awful like chamber that they were trapped inside of, but it was sturdy and protected them from the elements and it was enough because they were out there for work, not for pleasure. So as they're walking towards their tiny little cabin, they get just outside the cabin and notice a very large footprint, like an animal print outside the cabin. And then stop, they look down. Now these are five rugged mountain men that are accustomed to being out in the wild. They've had their fair share of run-ins with large predators, and so they quickly said, oh, that's a bear print. But upon closer inspection, as they're looking at this print, they noticed it was 19 inches long. That's way too big to be a bear print. And so they start speculating about what type of animal could make that print. As they're speculating, one of the men brings up that over the course of the week when he had been away from the group, a little ways away from the cabin, he had noticed a similar, not nearly as big, but a similar print. And when he had bent down to look at the print and inspect it to see what it was, he said he heard a whistling sound coming from the forest that was right next to him. And so he stood up and looked, but he didn't see where the whistling was coming from. And he thought to himself, I don't know what animal makes that sound. So he's looking out, he can't see where the whistling's coming from, and then he hears whistling behind him. The same sound, but on the opposite side of him. And he turns around and he looks, and there's nothing over there as well. And he's trying to put together in his head what animal makes that sound. He knows it's not the people he's out there with, because they were way over near the cabin, and he could actually see them from where he was. And he starts getting this really uneasy feeling that whatever made this huge print is probably in the woods right now watching me, whistling at me. And so he abandons the print and heads back to camp, but was too embarrassed to bring the story up to the group in fear that they would think he was exaggerating, so he never brought it up. When this guy tells this story to the group, Fred Beck would say, that's weird, I heard whistling coming from the forest too, I thought it was you guys. They figured they were dealing with a large predator. They decide that it's in their best interest to forego a campfire outside the cabin, which they normally would do at night, and instead just go right inside the cabin and shut the door because they don't know what animals are out here and they want to play it safe. So they're sitting inside their windowless little dark cabin and they start feeling pretty hungry. And they decide they want to boil some water to make food, but they don't have any water. Normally, when any of these guys went out to fetch water, they would go by themselves. The spring was not very far away from their cabin. They'd just walk out, scoop some water up, and come back. But because they were all feeling pretty uneasy, and they didn't know what this big animal was that was in their general vicinity, Fred, along with one of the other men, whose name was Hank, decide to go together and to bring their rifles just in case. Fred and Hank begin walking over to the stream that was only about 100 meters away from where they were. The moon was out, so there was a little bit of light coming from that, mostly dark. And they're walking over to this, this stream, then all of a sudden Hank stops and raises his rifle up at the side of this embankment that was totally forested all the way up the side of the valley. Fred looks where Hank is aiming and immediately he can tell what he's looking at. Standing a couple hundred meters up this mountain is this creature that's very tall, standing on two legs, it appears to be hairy, that's poking its head around a tree and it's looking at them. They could only see it because the moon was casting light directly on it, so it was totally illuminated. As soon as Fred recognizes what they're looking at, the creature ducks back behind the tree. At the same time, Hank fires three shots in its general direction, and then there's silence. And then all of a sudden, it comes barreling out from behind the tree and is running straight down the mountain towards them while whistling over its shoulder, looking like it's communicating with something behind it. Hank starts firing in its direction. It's clearly not striking this creature, but at some point, the creature disappears. They don't know where it went. It's dark out. The only way they could see it before was because the moonlight happened to illuminate it. Now they don't know where it is. 
Fred and Hank abandon the water idea and they run right back to the cabin. They jump inside, shut the door, and they start barricading the door shut. The other men are like, what the heck is going on? And they start explaining what happened. They didn't know if it was a person or if it was this creature. They heard that whistling sound. All the guys are spooked. And now they're barricaded inside of this tiny cabin and it's totally dark. There's no windows. So they can't even see what's going on outside of the cabin. And so they just had to sit there and hope that this creature does not come anywhere near them. After a long period of total silence, the men start to feel like, okay, whatever that was, it's not coming back. It's late at night. Let's just try to get some sleep. And so the men all lay down and eventually doze off to sleep. Then at some point in the middle of the night, something smashes into the side of the cabin, causing them all to wake up. Hank's yelling out because a piece of wood that actually made up the cabin had come loose from whatever had hit the side of the cabin and fallen onto him. So the group gets up, there's a little bit of light coming through this now, a little crack in the wall from where this wood plank came out. They can see what's happening now. There's a little bit of light inside. They run over, they get this plank off of Hank. And as they're trying to kind of make sense of this chaotic moment, they start hearing what sounds like lots of people running around the outside of their cabin. Hank, who was closest to this little slat that had been created from one of the planks falling out, just turns his head to look out the slat. Because of the moon, there was a little bit of illumination. And when he looked out, he was horrified because he saw three creatures, these tall ape-like creatures, the same one that Fred and Hank had been shooting at up over at the valley before. They're standing 10, 15 meters away from the cabin, standing upright, looking at the cabin. They're holding these small boulders in their hands. And as Hank is looking through the slat, he's trying to get a little bit closer to get a better look. One of the creatures bends down and sees that Hank is looking at him and he winds up and he throws the boulder and smashes against this little slat. Hank basically falls over because he's trying to avoid this, this boulder being thrown at him, but the slat was small enough that it, it didn't go through. Hank's telling the rest of the men that there's three of them. There's three of them, they're right there. The men are grabbing their rifles, they're getting ready to aim out of the slat to try to take a shot at one of these creatures. But by the time they have a sight picture, there's no one out there, except they hear these footsteps and they start hearing whistling coming from other sides of the cabin where they have no way of seeing what's going on because there's no windows and that gap in the cabin was only facing one way. And so they just sit there in silence as they hear all this whistling and footsteps and shuffling happening outside of their cabin. Then all of a sudden they hear slamming against the one door that leads into the cabin. They had barricaded the door already so they go up and they're, they're pressing back against the barricade as whatever is outside is trying to break into the cabin, but it can't get through the barricade. When they couldn't break in the front door, there was a barrage of these boulders smashing into the cabin. Now these men had built the cabin. They knew it was sturdy, but they didn't know if it could withstand boulders hitting it. And so for hours, these rocks and boulders are smashing into the cabin. They never see them again through that slat. They kept periodically looking and there was never any creatures that were on that side. It was like the creatures knew that they could be seen on that side, but couldn't be seen elsewhere. Finally, it just stops and they sit down in the middle of the cabin. Fred was sitting in such a way that he could actually see the slat in the cabin that was now open and exposed. And as he's sitting there, Fred is horrified when he sees a hand slide into the cabin, a hairy, big ape hand that reaches in and starts fumbling around, grabs hold of an ax that was leaning up against the inside of the cabin. And as it's getting ready to pull it out, Fred runs over and twists the ax so it won't slide through the slat. And so the creature is slamming the ax, trying to get it out at the same time that Hank takes a shot and shoots right through the slat. The creature releases it and runs away. They hear all this whistling very close to their cabin. 
which made them realize that they had just been quietly waiting outside of their cabin. They had never left. But after Hank had taken that shot at the thing's hand, it sounded like almost a, a stampede was running away off into the forest. And at that point, the group was fairly certain that it was done. The next morning when they saw through that slat in their cabin that the sun had finally come up, the men packed only the bare necessities, they got their weapons, when they finally opened up that door, all over the ground, all around the cabin were these rocks that clearly had been thrown at the cabin. The cabin itself had obviously withstood the barrage, but there was gash marks and slashes all over it. Feeling very lucky, the men start making their way out of the valley and they make their way all the way back to town. And after the story kind of went viral, Loads of people went out there to try to find these creatures, but no one ever could. Skepticism and belief alike have both played a role in the Ape Canyon attack story since the day it was recounted for the first time to the public. And until recently, has been only that, a story, until a man by the name of Mark Marcel tracked down the location where the cabin sat. This is his story. And welcome everybody to another episode of Monster X Radio. I'm your host here, Shane Corson. And, of course, Monstrex Radio is brought to you by Sasquatch Coffee. Have you tried it yeti? And you can find and, and purchase an order of Sasquatch Coffee at SquatchCoffee.com. Now, today our guest uh, is a man of many talents. Uh, I got a huge amount of respect for our guest today. And our guest today is Mark Marcel. Mark Marcel is a good friend of mine. Um, someone that, that I have a lot of respect for uh, that is... Uh, Kind of behind the scenes on a lot of a lot of the uh, well for the Bigfoot world in general, and uh, he's not actively seeking out Sasquatch or Bigfoot, but he looks at a lot of the historical accounts, um, and, and he, he dabbles in a lot of stuff. Like he's a man of many talents. I mean, Mark Marcel—he's a land surveyor, a uh, public aquarist, and obviously a historical investigator of long-standing episodes of the unexplained. A unique individual uh someone that's doing the subject uh, a lot a good cause i mean he's bringing to light not just the tales but what actually transpired what happened uh and he's uh he's just he's just an amazing guy uh, so i'm gonna go ahead and bring mark on the show <laughs> wait a minute is there a live audience there uh yes of course just for you. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> welcome, Mark. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you, my friend. Oh, man. I'm blessing sucks, Shane. God, what an introduction. You're very, very <laughs> kind. You're very nice to have me on. So, oh. anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, you're right. You know, I feel, I, I really feel that um, these historical accounts, um, like, kind of like, we've talked about this before, but when I started to get into re-researching the Ape Canyon story, I feel like it was just on the threshold of being canned into the circular trash bin of tall tale and legend and, and that kind of thing. And um, I think in the retelling of a lot of historical accounts, 
any kind of cryptid account or any kind of anything unusual, lights in the sky or whatnot. Oftentimes in the retelling, it, it turns into campfire stories and everyone's, you know, it, it ends up with this pall uh, of, of a public attitude of like, well, that may have happened, that may, that may not have happened, and that's an interesting story, isn't it? And it's just, there, there it sits dead. But if it's the right kind of story that has documentation behind it, I, I'm, I'm always amazed when I find the right story that there, is, there can be a lot of documentation, and those kind of stories really deserve a hard second look, a hard batch of research to get back into it, because oftentimes there's, there's a lot more going on that, that we didn't know about before when we have a chance to take a look at it again. So I think it's important work, humbly speaking. Uh, you're far too humble. Uh, I, uh, I like to refer to you <laughs> as the modern-day Indiana Jones when it comes to this stuff, and I say that. Oh, same, same. <laughs> I say that because I've, I've actually gone out with you. Uh, you know, we went out to, um, to the, the side of Ape Canyon, and uh-huh. I got to stand uh, where, where the, the cabin used to be. But just the whole trip out there, uh, having been an outsider kind of looking in on your world, I thought, this guy's not only, you know, in the library, online, talking to people. This guy's out, out looking. So, I mean, it's, it's a twofold sort of search so and and multifaceted and that i was just kind of in awe sitting back watching you do uh something you love to do your passion something you're very good at uh, oh, but yeah you, you, yeah um mark but, but for for the for the for monster x radio we have a, our, our viewership has grown and grown and grown uh exponentially for, for those that may not know who mark marcel is and shame on you if you don't uh can, can you just <laughs> Tell uh, the, the, the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in this sort of subject. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I was born, I, like to give you my year, I was born in 66, and so I'm 51 now. And, you know, our uh, that that generation, you know, and well, just to briefly touch on Ape Canyon, just briefly, it's like when I got into the Ape Canyon story, and, oh, hey, Mark, you know, what are you doing these days? And I would talk to people about Ape Canyon, even though even even folks who had grown up in the Pacific Northwest, I, I was always uh, going to explaining the explaining the story to them. It's like, oh yeah, you remember this. You you remember that story, don't you? And I was quite shocked <laughs> that there are quite a few people, yes, younger than me, say thirty five or maybe forty years old and younger, who didn't know about this story. Because and I, the reason why I'm sh- I, was, I was kind of surprised. It's because I kind of came of age, I was born on the coast in Oregon, I was born in Newport, and um, I came of age, you know, when we all get old, we all becoming aware of our outside world, when I was like seven, eight years old and whatnot, and that was happening at a time in, in American pop culture when there was this big resurgence of, you know, unexplained phenomenon. There were all these uh, docudramas and B movies and television shows. That's when you know, you know, the Sasqu- uh, Bigfoot: The Legend of Sasquatch came out as a movie. We had shows like In Search of, and even even um, even dramatizations like Kolchak the Night Stalker, right on ABC, which I watched religiously. If I missed Kolchak when I was a kid, it was like missing a Peanuts holiday special. You know, it was like devastating <laughs> if I missed the show. And so, I, since growing, I realize now, growing up at that time and coming of age, 
frankly, it had a pretty big effect on me. I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that, you know, TV and pop culture had an effect on me, but it did. And so perhaps that's what sparked it. And all, ever since then, I, since I was a kid, I would just read voraciously all these, any, anything and everything having to do with uh, supernatural phenomenon or natural phenomenon that remained, you know, unexplained, the Nazca lines. Lights in the sky, monsters in the woods, that, you know, that kind of thing. And so part, part of the reason why you and I are talking over the phone and why you and I go out in the woods looking for, you know, old weird cabins, kind of like the Blair Witch Project, is that um, I grew up with my dad running the family business. My dad was a land surveyor. And so I grew up with the family business of, you know, cutting brush and carrying stakes for 50 cents an hour when I was a kid. And it really was a luxury because I was raised as a land surveyor. And, and I've, I eventually got licensed in Oregon and Washington and I'm running the family business now. But really, I feel it's that combination of my land surveying background and also my incredible interest in, 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 in the unknown and things that are worthy of research, the unexplained or whatever you want to call it, Sasquatchery. Um, because land surveying by its nature, when you ask me to find where your property corners are, there is a, in, every, in any given job, there's a tremendous amount of research that goes into figuring out where your property corners are that all starts with document and historical research, of uh, deed research and survey research, any kind of documents in the vault that may help me out in the cause of surveying your property. So, you know, surveyors tend to uh, be very historically minded because of that. They have a great interest in, in, in history, land history, almost any kind of history. So then what happened was that um, that got me really heavily involved in this world some years ago. My friend Brad says it was about 10 years ago. I remember more like six or seven years ago. Um, I was uh, perusing uh, the lower Dewey Decimal System of the Public Library in Vancouver, and uh, that's where all the you know all the Sasquatch books are, and all the pyramid books, and all that you know Atlantis books. And I came across a book by um, our pal Nick Redfern called Three Men Seeking Monsters. And I always bring, I always bring, I always go back to that book because it was kind of an event for me. It's a, it's a great, it's a great story, and um, you know, I'm not plugging Nick's book, but maybe I am. But it's a great buddy film, a buddy. I always think of it as, as a movie, but it's a great buddy story of three guys in a van going out of Devonshire to head down southwest towards Cornwall to research a, an old story, over a hundred year old story down in Cornwall of sightings of, of this creature they called the man monkey. And it was basically a Cornish short version of, of Sasquatch, where it was reported maybe six or seven feet tall. And it was, it, it's a great read. Later on in the book, Nick talks about this idea that I frankly had never considered before, and it kind of floored me, where if you are a researcher into any kind of strange subject, um, where there's, you know, UFOs or, or, or Sasquatch or whatever. Nick came up with this idea, may, maybe not independently, but he brought it out in his book, that if you look around the general timeline and if you look around the general geographic area, more often than not, you're going to find other 
seemingly uh, disconnected events of high strangeness, as Fort used to say, that seem that are going on at the same time in the same area, but are not necessarily related to anything that you're researching. So that idea really grabbed me. I was like, wow, that's really strange. And so I purposefully picked two stories out of my files, one which was extremely well-known, Ape Canyon, the 1924 Ape Canyon incident, and another one which is not known at all, um, which I really haven't figured out yet, but it was, it was an event down in uh, western uh, Yamhill County in Oregon near Sheridan where uh, there was repeated sightings and, and frankly encounters with at night with this uh, strange dark shadowy hominid type figure up in the forest so i started taking those two subjects and like nick says looking around the general area and the general timeline to see what else was going on i was doing i was looking at these two projects at the same time and and because of the and trying to track down witnesses from the Yamhill County incident uh, combined with this mountain of information that came out about Abe Canyon, the Yamhill County project kind of is still on the back burner <laughs> because, I, <laughs> because I was just so dang busy going through the Abe Canyon project. And just, just as an aside, um, the, the Abe Canyon project panned out as far as Nick's idea because, yes, there were two, well, one in particular, one very strange incident going on at the same time nearby in 1924. Uh, an another one was a, a pretty devastating forest fire that was happening at the same time uh, during the 1924 incident nearby, which is, you know, a natural phenomenon, but I think it's, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting factor into the 1924 Abe Canyon incident. So anyway, after a little while, I started finding some pretty incredible stuff out in the field uh, regarding uh, Abe Canyon. And I think I may have put up a couple of things. I didn't know anybody. This was just me going through the vaults and going through newspaper files and going through mining records and anything I could find. So I didn't know anybody in the Sasquatch world, but I put out a couple of things on, on a couple of blogs, I believe, and um, all of a sudden my phone started ringing off the hook. And I had, there was one incident in particular. I was sitting, actually, I'm sitting right here at the desk in the office right now here in Westport, and the phone rings, and um, uh, my son, Santiago, picks up the phone, and he brings it into the office and says, it's for you. And uh, it was uh, Cliff Berrickman who called me because he had heard that I had found some stuff about Eve Canyon. And uh, Cliff and I are really good friends, but I'm, I was embarrassed to say I didn't know who Cliff Berrickman was <laughs> when, he, when he called me, just some guy, and he just wanted to know about Eve Canyon, and he told me he was working for Finding Bigfoot on Animal Planet, and he, so we got to know each other, and we've been, we've been hanging out since. So that's, that's kind of the short version of where I came from and, and how, I, how I'm here. Uh, one thing i got to say is that since then i've been asked to speak at some conferences and i've gotten you know i've gotten to be friends with you and gunner on monster x and and i am i was talking to a friend about this today i i am shocked when i go to conferences you know some sasquatch conferences are like a day some of them are like a weekend where there's a, a campfire and social you know you can socialize with different people i am shocked at the diversity 
of people involved in in Bigfoot research and I'm also in so many talented people and I'm shocked at the amount of big brains that I have frankly met out there. I mean, you know, I've met primatologists, I've met, you know, microbiologists, uh, you know, hair sample experts like Cindy Dosen, anthropologists like Dr. Meldrum. There are a lot of smart people that are, you know, a lot bigger brain, smarter than I am, who are very, very dedicated to the subject and the research that's going on. So anyway, it's, it's, it's a family, and I feel very humbled to be invited into it. I've made, made a lot of good friends, and we've had good times. That's a great point, Mark. You know, a lot of times, uh, well, first of all, it, uh, let me just say this. It, I, I could not imagine being in this subject matter and, and doing what I do without knowing someone like you, and without knowing you personally, because you're phenomenal. <laughs> you, don't, you really don't give yourself enough credit. But no, having said either. that, well, it's, tr- it's the truth, I, and, and that's why I'm, I'm privileged to have you on the show, because what, what you do is, to me, it's amazing, and, and you're by far a bigger brain than I but I will say this, that there are a lot of talented uh, individuals involved with the research of this subject from all different backgrounds, from all different sciences, academia, uh, uh-huh. walks of life, uh, and that's not noted enough. And I'm glad you brought that to the table because it's not just at, uh, not just at these conferences um, that you meet these individuals. You know, uh, I've been contacted before. You know, you had Cliff Berkman, of, of, who's also a good friend of mine and, and uh, of Finding Bigfoot. Uh, a huge brain um, and very intellectual and smart and just a nice guy and uh, yeah and it's through the subject yeah. matter through the subject no matter I've got to meet people such as yourself so no great point I just wanted to elaborate on that a little bit because I think that's uh, there's a lot of truth to to what you just said there so I appreciate and, that and you know you know with people like Cliff you know it, it's so, it's so funny when you when you uh, bring up the subject of the television show, which, you know, and you know, in the Bigfoot community, you know, there's a lot of, you know, internet chatter about, you know, the, the veracity and the validity uh, of the show and what they're trying to do and whatnot. And, but there is that aspect of, yes, it is a television show and yes, it is for entertainment. And these people that you see as the TV show hosts, you know, like Renee and Bobo and, and Cliff, you know, there, you, you just see that, that half hour or one hour episode. But, you're right about Cliff Bergman. Is that if you get to know him at least a little bit, holy smokes! Yeah, the guy, the guy <laughs> is incredibly intelligent and knows a lot about a lot of different subjects, and he has a passion for the sciences and a passion for education, right? But one reason, in particular, he he really wanted to go up to Ape Canyon with me, which you know, which he did. He went up with me and Craig Flippy and and our friend Brad Angus, and we had a, we had a good time. But one reason specifically why I wanted to get Cliff up there is because um, despite the fact that the man makes his living out there looking for Sasquatch and evidence of Sasquatch, he's one of the most skeptical men I've ever met, you know, and he'll, he won't, I mean, he'll take something, he'll take something at face value, but he'll file it in the back of his brain and really cook on it and look for you know, some verification of some piece of evidence for himself. And so I wanted him to go up there um, for that talent so that, you know, he and I had met before two or three times for a long talk for a long, long time. And I laid out the whole Ape Canyon evidence and everything. And then I was able to take him up there and say, well, remember, this is, this is, this is what the story says. This is what the document says. 
and this is what I found in the field. Let's go and take, check this out and take a look at it together so that I could get someone else's eyes on it besides just mine, you know. Um, I still say that I am 99.5% sure that I have found the site of the 1924 attack. Um, but, I, I, you know, I'm not going to make any money off of this, you know, and I'm not, I don't want, I'm not going to be holding out any secrets, and that's why I like to share the information as I find it, uh, just to, just to get the word out, just to allow people who may be interested in it to look at the evidence themselves, to look into the document record themselves. Um, because document records, historical research, it, almost all of it is public record, and anybody can go and look up, you know, these documents themselves in the different, you know, repositories of where the information is. So if someone's really interested, and maybe they're interested in another story, that they can go out and look for it themselves. You know, it's it's the thing that's a shocking thing about Eve Canyon and Thompson and the Thompson Flat Monster, which is just basically in the infancy part of that project, is that there has been the story that's been kind of digested into those, into that retelling style in, in Sasquatch books or, you know, in books like Weird Washington. It's been digested down into a paragraph or maybe three or four or five pages in a book, but um, it's still just a digest of the story. And the real story that's so shocking is that, you know, this information has been sitting there in the file in different, you know, broken up into different parts into the mining record or birth or death records or, you know, different, different kinds of records. But it's just been sitting there for 90 years, 100 years, 110 years, whatever the project is. It's just been sitting there waiting for us, just waiting for us to come along and find it and put all the puzzle pieces together and that's the exciting part indiana jones is yeah you're right yeah it it is it's that quest it's that it's that you know trying to find that one thing out in the middle of the woods or trying to find that one piece of paper in the vault in the county courthouse you know somewhere tucked away in, in some county just waiting for us to come and pick it up and it's it's gold it's it's so yeah. exciting when you can find that kind of stuff so yeah it's, it's, it's a great process. yeah it's Really looking for the you know the, the holy the, you know quest the holy grail in in pieces of evidence to substantiate some of these claims and and, and make a, a tale into you know is there, is this just a, a a tall tale or is there some truth to it and uh, with yeah. the uh, with, with the Ape Canyon uh, you know uh, you know I want to make this uh, you're such a fascinating guy to talk to and a wealth of knowledge Mark I, I'm trying to I would look, and this is going to be easy to do I want to make this into a two part episode because uh, I'd like to touch upon Ape Canyon more this episode, and then some of your your, um, your the work you're doing now. On um, sure. though I know Ape Canyon is never closed, but you're venturing into other areas, and you're going to be talking about some of this stuff at the International Bigfoot Conference in Kennewick, Washington, hosted by Russell That's Accord. Right. And yeah. also, you're you're going to be in Montana for the Big Sky Conference, which right on. Wow. So yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a busy it's a busy September. And I'm I'm trying to fit in uh, one one Ape Canyon trip this year in August or September because you know when you when you have a project like this, um, it, it's it's you know I anytime I go out I want to be working I want to be working on you know some part of the project, and Ape Canyon basically only has for the field work basically only has one more facet. Um, well, maybe not. I mean, there, might be, there might be a couple of other things, but basically one more facet 
to wrap up the field work uh, for for Abe Canyon, and that's the site survey. And uh, because um, for Abe Canyon, well, maybe maybe we should get into the details of Abe Canyon here in a second. But in Abe Canyon, there were uh, about three or four features, physical features, um, that uh, the miners uh, used. I should say uh, they they built a ladder down about a 30-foot drop in order to be able to access the uh, the cabin site. There's the cabin itself. There's the mine. There's the spring where uh, one of the very first face-to-face encounters with, as they call them, mountain devils took place. There are these site features that have been identified now over the past two or three years, and all of that really needs to be put. I'm a surveyor, so everything goes in map form, right? And so all of that really needs to be surveyed in so that a, uh, a good, decent map can be, can be produced uh, to go along with the rest of the story. So that's what I'm hoping to do here um, this, uh, this coming summer sometime i hope so but yeah i I do have i do have the two conferences that i've been very very kindly invited to so yeah i have the ibc in kennewick and then big sky a couple of weeks after that in montana right and and of course you have an aquarium to run uh and i gotta run the aquarium (laughs) yeah (laughs) three kids Uh, survey business (laughs) come on get your act together and get back out there It's a slacker. But you said something earlier. You said, you know, you're 99.5% uh, um, uh, sure that this is, the, you know, the cabin site in, in, in Ape Canyon up at Mount St. Helens. I am 99.9% sure. Uh, and, and I have no place saying that because you've done the, the legwork and the work on it. But having been to the site and having you show me specific things that I have looked at over the years, uh, specific um um, features uh, of this area. I, when I was down there, I was blown away. Um, and I've talked about this before. I was just blown away and going, wow, th- this is really it. And once I got to really fathom where I was standing and I got to venture around and look around and, and in fact, find certain things that uh, I couldn't believe were there. Um, I, I was, well, I'm almost 100% sure, but, uh, you know, there's always that little percentage. But, you know, Mark, I'd like to get into the details a little bit more, and, and I hope you don't mind because I know you've talked about this at length, but it is really uh, important. It's fascinating. I think the, the viewers would love to hear more about um, how how the Ape Canyon search came to be and your findings. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, uh, I, when, before, I, before, I get in, before I get into it, just, just one little preface is that... Um, I still feel like it's a dream, Shane. I know, I know how you were feeling, and I still feel it when <laughs> you are pretty sure that you are there. All the evidence is is pointing to it, and you know, finding stuff in the ground. Frankly, as you know, out in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> no. <laughs> but also, the document evidence was there of people who had visited the site right after the attack in 1924 and left us information and all the evidence was was coming together and yeah it still is like it still is like i'm in a dream i can't believe that you know sheer dumb luck of actually being able to find the cabin site but anyway anyway what what had happened and why there is this pretty dramatic box canyon on the east side of mount st helens called ape canyon is because of this incident 
on July the 10th in 1924. Um, this is on the east side of uh, Mount St. Helens. Um, because it's, I'm going to say shockingly very close to the crater, and the reason why it's surprising to me is that, that there still is evidence in the ground, even though it's very, very close to a volcano that blew up a few years ago, right? You know, so before that, by the way, this is way up near the timberline of the mountain. Um, and the reason why it's called Ape Canyon, before, before that it had a couple of uh, unofficial names. One was uh, Jump Off Canyon. Another one was Thousand Foot Canyon, even though it's not a thousand feet deep. Um, it had a couple of loose names. And starting around um, 1918, um, there was a fellow by the name of Marion Smith. And he was the son of a, a Kelso area uh, a pioneer uh, just north of Kelso in the Lexington neighborhood. If by the, by the way, if you ever are going I-5 North and you'll see the exit for uh, the Lexington Street Bridge, there's a Chevron station right there. And I, I'm, I understand a little bit that the Smith family, the descendants of the Smith family, still run that Chevron station today. That's, <laughs> that's where Marion Smith grew up. And he grew up in the age of big timber. By the time 1924 came around, he was not a spring chicken at all. He was into his 60s, right? And so he grew up in the Kelso lumber community, you know, hauling these monstrously big trees out of the, out of the mountains. And so he um, knew a lot about the mountains, and he had seen and shot and, you know, fished, everything that there was to do in the mountains. Just he and his dog and his rifle. And uh, he knew that up on the mountain there was gold. Not a lot, but there was gold. Uh, St. Helens does produce um, gold. And even there was a, a large placer mine uh, in what is almost now downtown Vancouver, Washington, from gold being, you know, being carried off the mountain by the streams. So in 1918, he started going up there and looking for uh, plaster, lo plaster locations to, uh, to make his own claim. And he worked his way up the Lewis River east of Woodland, and he was working with family members and friends. He had a couple of uh, close friends, John Peterson, and um, he brought his, uh, his son-in-law, uh, Fred Beck, and when he got older, he, uh, he brought his son, Leroy Perry Smith, up there. And in 1922, um, they decided that they had found a, um, a place for a gold mine, and it was a load claim. It was a hard rock mining, digging back into, uh, into the mountain um, at this canyon, Thousand Foot Canyon, or Jump Off Canyon. When they started working, in the, and they filed a claim, they filed a mining location notice in Skamania County, where the, where the mine is situated, and they um, they started working this mine in 22, and what they were doing, instead of coming in from Woodland and heading north, by that point they realized it was easier to go through Castle Rock to Spirit Lake, which was the last place where you could park your park the truck, and uh, then hike in to to the canyon. The canyon at the head of the canyon, there's a large butte called Thomas Butte. And it's about, oh, about six miles or so from Spirit Lake, maybe seven miles. I only did that hike once uh, from Spirit Lake. And um, when, they, when they were starting the mining, they were just tent camping. 
Uh, they were bringing in supplies in the tent and setting it up at the base on the west side towards the mountain of Pumice Butte and going up and over Pumice Butte and down to the mine site. And it wasn't too terribly long after that, in 22, that they started hearing and experiencing some strange phenomenon up there, way up on the ridge lines at night. They could hear a high-pitched whistling from one of the ridges, and then there would be an answering whistling, high-pitched whistling call from the other ridge, and whatever was up above them was talking back and forth to each other. Uh, Marion Smith also talked about hearing a strange, low, very low decibel bass thumping kind of strange sound, um, and it was so low and so bass-like, like a subwoofer maybe, that he couldn't exactly tell where it was coming from. It was just coming from around the area somewhere. Uh, they ended up finding um, a singular, large, human-like footprint. Um, in, uh, if, if anybody, well, you can almost see this on an aerial photo. On the west side of Pumice Butte, up at the mountain, there's a large drainage area. It's mostly covered by boulders after the eruption now. But that, but that drainage area drains southerly and then easterly into the into the head of Eight Canyon. That's where they were camping, and they were sort of between uh, two rivulets, two streams. There was a large sand island, and it was Leroy's turn to go down and um, wash dishes. And he comes back, and he says, God, come here, come here, come here. And, they, and they go, he goes, and they, he shows them where they're in the middle of this island. There was an extremely large footprint, 17, 18 inches long, with toes, just like a human. And um, they were starting to get a little keyed up. There was something strange, which is, which is important to put into the perspective of Marion Smith getting relatively nervous because he had been up on the mountain forever, all of his life. And he wasn't like a you know, rough and tough, you know, rootin' tootin' tough guy. He was known as a very nice, affable man. Uh, but he was starting to get a little concerned that there was something funny going on there. So... Uh, they, they mined and, and, and worked the mine through 1923. At the end of 1923, reportedly the assays out of the mine were quite good. And uh, they decided that this was a going concern. Because they were tent camping, they, they couldn't, you can't stay up there year-round. These guys had families right. and, and they had regular jobs and they had to go back into town. Well, at the end of 23, they decided that when they returned in the spring of 1924, they were going to build a cabin right next to the mine site. And uh, the, the reason why is because they could, they could leave goods, they could leave mining tools, they could leave maybe dry stores of rice and beans in the cabin and have it secured. They, they knew that the cabin had to be formidable enough to withstand the snows because you're up at the timber line, you're gonna get a lot of snow up there. So when they returned in 1924, this would have been around the vicinity of mid-May, maybe late May. That's about the earliest you can get up there. Um, and that's what they did. They cut down trees uphill from uh, where they were going to build it. They, um, I believe I remember that they said they had used a little dynamite to blast out a shelf out of the mountain. And they cut down the trees and felled the trees and built the cabin. It was a log cabin about 10 feet by 20 feet or so. Well, just before the 4th of July, <clears throat> they're, they're building their, their cabin in the off time and during the day working the mine. 
just before the Fourth of July, there's a there's a spring where they would collect water just about 75, 100 feet north of the cabin site. And Marion Smith and Fred Beck um, are going to the spring to collect water, and they see across a, a small draw. The draws maybe two or three hundred feet wide. They see a creature up there. And they described it as seven feet tall or so, covered completely with hair, walking upright uh, like a human. And the creature is, is looking at them, poking out from behind a uh, large cedar tree. Well, Fred Beck immediately raises his, uh, his gun and takes three shots at it. And uh, Fred goes off running across the draw after it. And Smith says, you know, don't worry. No, you got it. No need to run. Let's just go over there. Well, they get to the tree, and there are uh, skinned marks along the side, along the bark on the side of the tree, where the bullets went past and struck the creature. Right, but they get there, and there's nothing. There's no body. There's no blood. There's no hair. And they look up, up uphill, continuing north, and there's that same creature walking away from them, watching them. Well, they go back for the Fourth of July. They go back into into town to join their families. And they start spreading the word a little bit. And I feel that that really kind of confused some people in town because Smith and Beck had the reputation in town of being Sterling Square guys, that whatever they said, you knew it was going to be the truth. If they said they were going to do something, you could count on that it was going to be done. But when they come back with these stories of these mountain devils, um, the public really didn't know exactly how to handle that. So they went back after the 4th of July, and that's when things started kind of going kind of going south on them and kind of snowballing, where Leroy Smith was coming back from the spring. Um, at that time, uh, Leroy was about 18 or 19 years old, and he's getting to the cabin site with the water. This is during the daytime, and there is a noise in the bushes behind him, and he turns around. And there's one of them. There's one of the huge creatures about, not very far. This is a very, very limited area, geographically as far as a flat area to walk around. It's pretty limited. So it was only about 50 or 75 feet away. Leroy has his gun because Smith had ordered all of the miners, don't leave the cabin site unarmed. You take something with you. So Leroy raises his gun, and he shoots directly into the creature, and it seemed to have absolutely no effect whatsoever. The creature turns around and goes back into the goes back into the woods. The rest of the guys at the time were in the mine. On Wednesday, on July the ninth, Leroy's coming back from the spring again. This is later on in the day, and again, there's a creature right there, really close to the cabin. Leroy takes one shot into the creature, and then all of a sudden, all the other guys are boiling out of the cabin. And Marion and everyone's shooting at this thing. And Marion Smith um, estimated that there was something like around 15 to 16 rounds that went into this creature. Right? The creature, and this is, and I'm building. I, I built this story off of uh, interviews with the miners that were done directly after the after the attack on on the 10th of July, where they were interviewed and laid out the the, the timeline of what had happened. Because later. This next, this next thing had, had a little bit of a point of contention, but when everybody was shooting into this creature on, 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 that, on that night, or during in that afternoon, 
The creature was on the edge of the bluff that went down into Abe Canyon. And one of the last shots that was taken uh, went into the creature, and the creature either kneeled down and scrambled down into the, into the canyon, or it fell over into, into the bottom of the canyon. Well, that night, we're on Thursday, the guys are bedding down, and it's summertime, and so uh, the sun sets kind of late in the day. It was around 9.30 or 10 o'clock, and I understand that they were discussing, you know, is this gold really worth it? Should we be going home? And then all of a sudden, on the side of the cabin, there was such a huge impact that it was almost as if a truck was barreling down the mountain, knocking into the side of the cabin. And where they had uh, had split chinking to um, chink up the sides of the cabin, uh, between the logs, one of the chinking pieces fell out. It showed up, uh, that, that showed up in, in a photo that was taken by Gregory of, uh, of the Oregonian. So you can see the hole that was, that was knocked out. And it was maybe about 18, 24 inches long and, and maybe about five or six inches wide. And they look out of this hole, you know, what was that? They look outside of this hole and uh, there's enough moonlight. I checked the lunar record, so it was a full moon at the time. It was bright clear. They see out around the cabin, they see five or six of these creatures, right? Well, all hell breaks loose and whatever is out there starts attacking the cabin. They start beating on the roof. They're scrambling up on the roof. The guys have to barricade the door because whatever is out there is coming through the door. Um, and they start, you know, they're well-armed miners, and so through the hole in the side of the cabin, they start blasting away. It's a, uh, it's a split shake roof out of, uh, out of Douglas fir or pine, and so it's pretty thin. They start shooting through the roof any time that this thing is, is up there. They're screaming, they're yelling, they're, they're singing, they're just, please go away, you know, we stop and, and we're all gonna leave, okay? So there's rocks that are being thrown down uh, onto the cabin, and oh yeah, there was one. There was one incident where uh, one time during that night, where they knew something was digging under the cabin. They was digging from the outside underneath the wall in order to get to them, right? <laughs> and so this goes on all night long. Finally, the night the uh, the sun comes up, and. Um, it must have taken all the courage in the world to open up that door. Everything's quiet. They open up the door, and all around the cabin are, are just you know, hundreds of rocks that have been thrown down on top of them. Uh, large human footprints everywhere. Um, there was a, a stack of leftover um, shakes, shingles for the roof, and uh, whatever had gotten onto the roof was using that as a kind of as a step to get up on the roof. And so those are scattered everywhere. And they look at each other, and it's just like, you know, <laughs> grab your tobacco and your revolver and let's get out of here. And they hiked that morning, which was Friday morning, uh, back to uh, the truck where it was parked at Spirit Lake. And Bill Welch was the head ranger for the Spirit Lake District for the what was then the Columbia National Forest. And Marion Smith is the first one to see him. He actually sees Bill's wife, Wilma Welch, first. And Bill comes up and says, what's going on? And Marion Smith tells Bill, you know, I got one, I got one. Well, what'd you get? Well, I got a mountain devil, a mountain devil, huh? Was it a wolverine? No, no, a mountain devil, because there were, there were wolverines up there. I guess they're coming back now. A cougar? No, no, a mountain devil. 
And I just wanted to let you know if I ever got one, because I told you I was going to tell you if I ever if I ever got one. So Marion Smith goes to the truck, and Bill follows him around. And at the time of the attack, there were five people, Marion Smith and four other miners. And the four other guys had gotten had gone around and gotten into the truck right away. So when Marion rounds around and gets into the driver's seat, uh, Bill looks into the truck, and Bill said at the time, and he said later in an interview about 40 years later, he had never seen four grown men so shaken and scared in his entire life. Something really scared the hell out of him up there. And so what happened is, is word got out. They went down back home. And when they were walking out on the trail, they said, don't say anything to anybody. But they couldn't not talk about it. And so there was a famous... Um, uh, there's a famous tavern which is gone now. It's, it was torn down many years ago. It's under the uh, Allen Street Bridge in in Kelso, and uh, that was that was Friday night. That was Friday night, and uh, Marion Smith is friends with the bartender, with the owner. Uh, John, actually, our our friend John Pickering gave me gave me this story. He he had a friend who knew the owners of the of the tavern, and Marion Smith spills the beans. Well, Kelso's a small town, and the Longview Daily News at the time heard about it, and they, um, uh, the word got out the very next day in the Saturday evening paper of the Longview Daily News, telling the world about how these miners had were attacked by mountain devils. And it's you know, kind of histrionic, but people have said jokingly that half of the armory and half of the population of the young men of the area were depleted because everyone is going up on the mountain <laughs> in order to bag one of these mountain devils. And it became known as the Great Ape Hunt of 1924. But that's the reason why this project has wheels under it, because it's amazing when you read Fred Beck's book, I Fought the Ape Man of Mount St. Helens, or you read the Ape Canyon story uh, in, in, a, in a you know modern retelling, um, it, it, it's quite shocking that it's because of the Great Ape Hunt of 1924 that there's a lot more to the story because it was so incredibly well documented. Many, many newspapers traveled up to Kelso in order to interview the miners, and so there's, there's an interview with every single miner that was there at the time, and even even other miners who had been at the mine site a year or two prior to the attack. They were interviewed as well. Two or three reporters actually went up to the cabin site and uh, got to see it. They stayed there overnight. Uh, rangers were interviewed. Um, there's just this whole mountain yeah. of information out there. It's just it's an incredible story. But that's why I got so buried in, into the story because there was so much to research. I mean, there is so much information out there. My, my Abe Canyon file right now is about four inches thick. Yeah, um, one of the things I wanted to touch base on, I know that I've been asked this from time to time, and I know, pardon me, excuse me, I know, Mark, that we've discussed this, but a lot of people go, well, Mount St. Helens blew up in 1980. Didn't it destroy the whole area? How could, you, how could anything be found? Uh, do you mind to, uh, explain that a little bit? Um, over the over blog talk radio, I'll try because it always okay. takes maps. 
But what it yes. is, <laughs> but what it is, is that well, one reason. Um, well, let, let me let me answer your question first, and I'll try to get to this other point if I can remember it. Uh, what the way it's set up is that Ape Canyon generally runs um, east-west, and the west end uh, at the head of the canyon is um, about. It's a little bit over the mi- a mile from the from the center of the mountain. From the crater now of the mountain, uh, it's over a mile, but it's just like around two miles. It's, it's not it, it's not very far. And at the at the end of that canyon, the, on the north side, there's a very large butte. Uh, it's Pumice Butte, right? And um, what is on the other side? If you go from Ape Canyon on the south side of the butte, you can travel north up and over that butte. To the north side of the butte, there's another large box canyon um, that, from what I understand, has been called Pummy Point. And um, those two canyons are on the ones on the north side of the butte and ones on the south side of the butte. And they both canyons travel east and eventually come together um, on, on the east side of the butte and keeps it keeps on draining further further to the east. Well, it, it's it's a strange it is a strange topographical coincidence that that um, anything was left, because what happened when the mountain blew up? It mainly blew up the the force of the impact when it erupted went to the north, but of course you know it's it's a hot steamy volcano blowing ash and everything out, and so all the snow around it melted and started. Well, the first one was pyroclastic flows that were very hot, and then after that, with all the glaciers. That, that melted, those glaciers that didn't vaporize, but those that melted, carried mud and rocks uh, barreling down the mountain, about 60 miles an hour from what I understand, in mud flows. Well, this is barreling down the mountain just before, heading, let's say it's heading east towards Ape Canyon, just before Pomus Butte, there's this flat area, it's the south end of, a, of an area called the Plains of Abraham. And the mud flows came down, hit the Plains of Abraham, and because of because of the inertia, it kept flowing east, but it went up the west side of the butte, scoured the west side of the butte, and then drained back down, drained back down towards the mountain, back into the bottom of the plains of Abraham, and then drained out. So it drained out into Ape Canyon, it drained out into the Pummy uh, Point Canyon, and it drained south into the Muddy River. What the point is is that the east side of the butte was very very little and very impacted very very little very very small and one of the fortunate things that we have um is a fellow named Molino, and i can't remember his partner's name but these two fellows are uh, usgs geologists and they produced this this monumental tome if you're into volcanology um or just general basalt geology they the usgs published this collection of papers that these two fellows edited uh, that studied the impacts of the eruption all the way around the mountain. Uh, and this was published in 83 or 84. Um, it's in most area libraries. One of the study areas, fortunately for us, that they looked at was Ape Canyon. Um, it's one of those weird things about how this whole project kind of came together with through strange coincidences. But fortunately, they looked at Ape Canyon. And they described what I just described about how the west side of the butte was was scoured, but the east side was was very little was very little touched by the eruption. 
so that they pointed out that on the east side of Pumice Butte, um, you only had about two inches worth of ash and pumice that was deposited on the ground. Most of the ash and pumice went up into the sky, and then the wind caught it and, and, and sent it somewhere else, right? So the east side of the, of the butte was very little impacted, and I realized once I started getting into the documentation of newspaper reports and everything that happened after 1924, I started to realize that that was the most likely location for where the Ape Canyon cabin and the Vendor White mine was, right? There was no map of where the cabin was. There was, you know, all it was was sort of this collection of clues about where it, where it was. And so I figured that it had to be there somewhere on the east side. And fortunately, it was an area that's, that's hardly impacted at all. And so it's amazing you go down there to the cabin site or anywhere on the east side of, of the butte and you just kind of scratch with your foot and um, there's you know there's that hard shell of, of ash that kind of like gets gets compacted through time and, and through water and that's maybe like an inch thick or so but you get through that just even digging with your hands and suddenly you're at natural ground uh, underneath that ash just a couple of inches it's just dirt and so that's that's the geographic coincidence of why the cabin site was was spared. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and uh, I have dug in the area a little bit, and, and I, I concur with your findings and agree. And to me, it's it's it's. Uh, I can only imagine had the cabin been anywhere else off the east side, what may have been left. Right, you we just still be talking about possibly where this cabin is. But it's why exactly, do you believe? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, but Mark, why do you believe, Mark? Uh, why do you believe, for the viewers, why do you believe that this is, why do you believe you possibly found the campsite? I mean, what gives you, uh, I mean, I know the uh-huh. answer. <laughs> I'm very confident yeah. in, in finding it. But, for, for, but for, for, for those that are just like, well, I mean, how come, maybe this guy just found uh, some old other cabin or, or a, he found something interesting. Right. A cabin, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or, or found a nail or, or A or nail. Whatever. Right, you know. Now, what it is, is, um, uh, again, it's documentation. And one of the things that we'll all learn at the International Bigfoot Conference is that I'm using Abe Canyon and another project I'm working on down in Oregon to try to drive home a couple of guidelines that I try to keep for myself in historical document research. And one of them is always track down the original document. Always, if you have a, have a story or have um, a piece of paper in front of you, you have to ask yourself, is that the original document or not? Okay. And the point being is that right after 1924, <clears throat> when reporters were going to Kelso and when reporters were going up to the cabin, one of them was a fellow named Jack Gregory, and he was a sports writer for the Oregonian, and his editor said, go get this story because... You know, sports at the time was baseball, football, but it also included like outdoorsmanship, like hunting and fishing and hiking. And so Jack was sent up there. And his article was published um, about his tree. He, he never interviewed any of the miners. Uh, what, but what he did do in his story, it was published on July 19th and the second part on July 20th in the Oregonian. <clears throat> and he t- provided a travel log of of a narrative of what he did going up to Castle Rock and, 
and getting the deputy sheriff to go with him and then going up to Spirit Lake and down the trail, and, you know, he described everything. It, that, that article has been transcribed, and I believe it might be on the BFRO website. I, I know it's floating around the Internet, right, Jack Gregory's article. Well, you look at that article, and you look at it and you read Jack's story, is that the original article? No, it's a transcription, right? It's not the original one. You have to find the original document. Here's the reason why. Going, you go to the microfilm, you go to the library and get the Oregonian microfilm or the historical society, and you grab Jack's article. And yeah, it's the real article. There is an article there, and I have proofed the transcription compared with what was published. And yeah, there's a few Scribner errors here and there, but it's basically the, it's a it's a it's a very accurate uh, transcription. But the reason why it was important is because Jack Gregory took a camera with him, and he photographed. And well, he photo. I don't know how many photos he took. The the originals are are gone, and I haven't been able to track them down. But he, but four four photos were published. One of them was of the two two sides of the cabin, right? And in one, in the long side of the cabin, in the foreground of the photo, you can see the stumps of the trees that had just been cut about a month, six weeks prior to the attack of when they built the cabin. And so I consulted um, uh, the head archaeologist at the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, and we had a discussion that that the east side of that butte, I needed to confirm the east side of the butte had never been commercially logged, right? And even though there still are some very large, valuable trees down there, the east side of the butte is just so dang steep. Logistics, the logistics of getting getting those trees out was just, it, it just wasn't possible. And so the fact that it was never commercially logged knew that if I could probably find those stumps or remnants of those stumps, because stumps last a long time in the ground after they've been cut, I knew that if I could find those stumps, I knew I'd probably be close. So <clears throat> in the first trips up there, looking and looking and looking and looking, um, stumps out there at all. Um, but then on the last trip, in July of uh, 2013, we started finding stumps. <coughs> Excuse me, let me take a drink of water. Yeah. And um, once we found the stumps, then we were able to use a metal detector and find the nails in the ground. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we found the broken saw blade, the saw that they broke in order to cut down the trees started finding all this evidence in the ground and that's when i knew we found an old spoon found wire i knew that that we had found the cabin at that point yeah and and having pardon me but having been there myself and and, and witnessing uh some of the findings uh and, and being in the location where this cabin was supposed to be or you know where you guys were uh led based on your, your uh, research, I was blown away by the location. Uh, and I thought, man, these miners, are, they, they were crazy. Uh, they were nuts. 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 Yeah, I, I mean, just nuts. <laughs> <laughs> there, if you read Fred Beck's book, 
he does have a very um and that's one thing that I, I I really have a hard I really have a hard time with um a lot of the frankly trash talk that people like to lay on Fred Beck because his book uh is a two parter book. And he describes the Holy Canyon incident. And then he goes on to wax rather philosophically about um uh, how, how do you say this? Uh, 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 spiritual evolution and and what almost almost describing how the cosmos works, you know. And so uh, with that, um, Fred Beck has kind of been written off as a bit of a nutcase. And in that in that book, he describes some uh, strange, uh, almost paranormal things that happened to him that led he and Smith and the other miners to lay claim to the mine where they did because it is precarious getting down there um it, it's 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 one in one of the most dangerous places i've ever it been sucks. It, let's, no. i'm gonna say it, it sucks <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's really really amazing now when you when you when you travel to the when you travel to the to the cabin there's more than one place is where you know it's pretty easy to lose your life right and we, when you and I went there with Gunner and and Shelley and Abigail and everybody, um, we we kind of took the long way around. There was a, there was a point uh, where you're coming down the mountain, coming down that slope, and there's a drop of about 30 feet, and the miners had built a ladder to to make that last drop uh, quote unquote easier for them. But again, if anybody wants to check, I think I think I've put it up on the internet and floating around. If anybody wanted to check out the uh, the uh, ladder site photo from the Oregonian, uh, there's a photo of of the deputy sheriff Dunbar standing on that ladder that the miners had built. And I'm afraid I still would go the long ways or what the long ways around that we did because that yeah. ladder didn't look very safe <laughs> to me in the photo. No, and no. it's a good size drop, you know. <laughs> the only difference between the long way and the short way is uh, during the long way you have. A lot more time to think about that. The short way, it's it's yeah, it's uh, you're there or you're not. <laughs> right, <laughs> and the chances of you not being there yeah, are very very high. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty it's a pretty dangerous place. Yeah, yeah, but uh, we did we, we very precautious and thank God you know you um you have some mountaineering uh, skills and training and and whatnot. You were very. Uh, we were very fortunate. Uh, otherwise, I probably would not have, have gone. But uh, what a trip it was! What a trip it was! Yeah, you did great, and on, on and honestly, I mean, you're you're invi- you're invited on any trip because your one of your great skills out in the field is that you're calm, you're tenacious, you remain positive, you're helpful. You know, I my my main experience with rope work and doing stupid stuff has been underground, right, and with caving. And, you know, when you go on a caving trip, um, there are some people that you don't want to go with who are rushing and they're hot dogs and, you know, they're very, you know, have a lot of machismo about them. The right kind of people are people who have maybe a strong, high skill set and they're very experienced. But nonetheless, those people are always taking care of everybody and making sure that everybody in the group is safe and everything is having a really good trip. And frankly, you're one of those kind of people. You really are. You're. You're. I can tell that you're very. 
you're a heck of a lot in better shape than I am, um, and you have a lot of experience. But you're right, you're right there to help anybody who needed help, no matter what. You know, so you're you're invited back. You can come on, you can come on many of my trips that you want. <laughs> I, I I truly appreciate the kind words, and uh, oh, it'll be my honor to come back. Definitely. Absolutely, Mark. Uh, any any outing with you, uh, it would be a great outing. Yeah, so oh, it thank was you. Fun, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, yeah, I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> you know yeah, please, please do, uh, Mark. We got about we got about ten minutes left. Uh, I'm gonna have to cut it, this particular episode short. But I, I gotta ask you: uh, Has anybody, uh, whether on their deathbed or anybody that was involved with the uh, the Ape Canyon experience that was present, uh, has anybody claimed that, uh, that it was a, they were lying or hoaxing? Or I mean, um, I, I obviously know the answer, but uh, that's a question that's been posed to me uh, via the chat room. Or, of course. Uh, sorry, in the PM. Thank you. Of course. Uh, yeah, uh, of course. The answer, the answer is definitively no. No, there yeah. never was a deathbed confession. Um, at least not one of any record. There is a rumor that I have come across um, in chat rooms or different stuff that there was a miner that confessed it was a hoax, but nobody named that miner. And again, hey, the original source. I have never found any original source either documented or in interviews with family members that that ever happened. There's two. There, there, there's a couple things going on. One that impresses me is that all of these guys died and they stuck to their story for the rest of their lives. And amazingly, and when they would talk about the story, if they were interviewed years later, um, their story really didn't change that much at all. It was essentially the same story without a lot of elaboration or anything. So no, there was no, there was no deathbed confession that it was a hoax amongst the miners at all. I've interviewed uh, Fred Beck's grandson, and, and, and Beck's grandson lived with his grandfather for many years throughout his teen and young adult life. And I asked him point blank, what, what's your take on the story? And he, he called his grandfather Fred, and he said he knew Fred for many years and knew what kind of person he was, and he knew that that story was 100% accurate. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> so there <yeah>. you go. <laughs> well... Uh, I mean, Mark, kudos to you once again on on your diligence and and, and looking yeah. into this because to look at the story face value, most would be like, eh, to, you know, uh, uh, there's no truth to this, blah blah blah. But you know what? There's always more to the story. I, you've done your your homework, you've done your work, you you've put your boots on the ground, and uh, man, what? There's so much uh, to go with the story, other than just the face value stuff. There's a lot of corroborating things uh, uh, there that, yeah. that, that you brought that you brought to light, that you brought to the table, and uh, this is just one of the things you're working on, and, and, and you've done a fantastic job. Why do you think, Mark? I mean, why 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 is this important work, in your opinion, to to be looking at the historical uh, these historical reports? Why is it important uh, in general? And why is it important yeah. to you? Yeah. The, um I, I know we're running short on time, so I'll try to keep this very brief because I'm obviously like this chatterbox and go on and on and on about this subject. But one, <laughs> one thing that we need to keep in mind is that, say, in the Renaissance or, or, or even the birth of modern Sasquatch research with researchers like John Green and Renee DeHinden and, 
and Ivan Sanderson and these guys in the 50s, 60s, Peter Byrne in, in, in the early 70s, these guys were doing the work that we're doing currently today, you know, investigating contemporary sightings, you know, talking to witnesses, time out in the field, that kind of thing. In, in, in the time when they were doing their, their research, Fred Beck was still around. Albert Osman was still around, right? And so they had that opportunity to interview, the, interview those guys. But we have to remember that when these guys were interviewed by Green and, and, and Patterson and other people, they were treating the, the, the interview or the research into, as an example, the Abe Canyon story, they were treating it as if they were looking into a contemporary sighting. What did you see? What happened? Okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. And that was it. You know, they didn't, they weren't looking into the story deeply as if they were, say, a homicide detective or an investigative reporter, you know. They weren't going around to verify and cross-verify the information that was given. So, in your, when you're doing a, an interview with a contemporary witness, you can't ask difficult questions because these, these witnesses are volunteering the information to you. You can't ask hard questions that may get your interview shut down. With historical research, you can ask hard questions like, have you ever been to prison? What church did you go to? Um, do you have a history of substance abuse? You know, where were you born? <laughs> you know, really, really tough questions. And being able to ask those questions in, in, in unusual subjects like Sasquatch research, you can get those answers and it provides a much larger detailed picture of what happened. Who were these people? What kind of lives did they have? What kind of lives did they have after their terrifying incident? And it provides us with a much larger picture that is relevant to today. Right. There, uh, Cliff Berkman likes to talk about um, a, a rarity or maybe an impossibility of violent attacks. People and that's one difference I have with Cliff is that I know that that doesn't happen today in a lot of modern sightings. But I can tell you, it did. It, it sure did. At Eight Canyon, these guys were attacked. A couple of other projects I'm working on, people were attacked. In another project, possibly killed. Right. So this historical research is relevant to what we're working on today, and that's that's one reason why I do it. Yeah. Um... Uh, fascinating is really fascinating work mark and i i appreciate you coming on i want to get to um i want to make this a two-parter because uh the ape canyon thing kind of it's amazing and it's kind of where you really made an impression on me uh i obviously know that you're you got other projects going on uh you kind of uh alluded to them right now here on the show want to have you back on for um, a part two soon yeah uh, there's yeah, I appreciate it, absolutely. And we'll, we'll, we'll have you back on here in, in just a few weeks, Mark. Uh, but I uh, really appreciate coming on, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you down the road here, Mark. Me too. I miss you, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> you I, I miss you, brother. Each other. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I miss you too, man. But uh, fantastic work. Um, I'm glad you're starting to finally get some of the notoriety, some of the, you know, the kudos that you deserve uh, that people are asking you to come to. And speak about it because uh, 
to me, the like you mentioned before, um, the historical value uh, is very important to me, and it's something that over time I've really come to appreciate. And it, as a, a Sasquatch enthusiast and a researcher, whatever, uh, I know that it's very important uh, because there's much to be learned about uh, from this, uh, from these historical reports. So I'm glad you're the one uh, bringing these things to light and, and finding the, the tidbits of truth. Mark, appreciate it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thanks. It's one thing. One thing that you mentioned is no, I, I, you know, not aggressively. I don't go out looking for contemporary accounts because there's a lot of good people like yourself and other people who are doing that now, right? And it's not my yeah. forte. Historical research and finding old stuff in the ground. Yeah, I'm pretty good at that. And so that's that's the contribution that I want. Yeah. Well, and, and you have, and I know uh, there's much more down the road here, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that you're working on here uh, the ne- uh, next time we have you on, Mark, um, and let's okay. make that soon. So uh, I appreciate okay, you joining us this evening, Mark. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shane. Okay, I'm going to talk to you soon. Talk to you later, Mark. Thank you. All right, bye. Well, folks, I, I hope you really enjoyed uh, this episode of Monster X Radio. Uh, Mark is just doing some amazing stuff out there, and he really is... Uh, uh, an investigator at heart, and truly, uh, you know, when, when I think of an investigator or the Andy Jones, Indiana Jones character, I, I claim to call Mark. <laughs> that it is Mark, Mark Marcel, fantastic guy. You get a chance. He's going to be speaking at the International Bigfoot Conference uh, beginning of September in Kennewick, Washington, uh, put on by Russell Accord. Uh, Gunnar Monson and I spoke there last year at the inaugural, the first uh, International Bigfoot Conference fantastic venue but i recommend going uh, if nothing else there's gonna be fantastic speakers there trust me and and whatnot but mark marcel uh very cordial guy humble and truly knowledgeable on the subject of some of these historical reports like Ape canyon and some of the other ones he's working on that uh he's brought things to light um because of his diligence that no one else is uh no one else is doing this really it's quite like mark is and uh, it's uh, it's amazing stuff. I recommend that. And and Mark will also be speaking at the uh, Big Sky Conference in Montana uh, down the road here. So uh, two events. I'm sure he'll be speaking at others because uh, uh, the word's getting out that this guy uh, is doing his stuff. And Mark, uh, like I said, is very humble. Uh, not a foot player. <laughs> no, he doesn't toot his own horn. He doesn't uh, reach out to conferences and ask to speak. People seek him out, and they're starting to seek him out, and he deserves it uh, because he's got a lot to share, and it's a shame if he can't share it. So uh, I hope you join me again next week for another uh, episode of Monstrex Radio. Gunnar Monson is taking a little uh, vacation, so I hope to have him back on the show here in a couple weeks. But until then, look forward to uh, speaking with our future guests and having you guys join in on, on, on the show. So I appreciate your, uh, your feedback. And appreciate you listening. Uh, have a great evening, all, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Monster X Radio. Wow, what a story. Uh, It definitely gives you some things to think about. 
kind of hard to stay skeptical after uh, what Mark Marcel found. Um, so, who knows? Anyways, uh, that's all I have for you today. If you liked what you heard, go ahead and give my podcast a shout. Uh, share it around social media, uh, your friends and family. Uh, screen my name out the car window while you're blasting my episodes. I don't care what it is. I just want my name out there, guys. I appreciate all the help you guys have been giving me so far. Uh, Got listeners all the way from Germany to the UK to uh, the US of A. So, spreading out. But I uh, still have not gotten any emails. And I'm asking for your guys' encounters or weird mishaps in the woods. uh, Anything. So I'm just I'm trying to take my podcast in a different area as I'm running out of material to do. So uh, again, guys, thank you for tuning in tonight. I really, really hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, I've spent quite a bit of time producing this audio, and uh, although it seemed pretty simple. Uh, for a newbie like me, it was actually quite difficult. So, but I'm slowly getting getting it down. So, well, that's enough rambling. Uh, be kind, be safe, love each other, love yourselves, and until next time.
level.